first, though, let's, uh, last week, quick review for you. You remember that at the end of chapter 3 of Mark, we spent most of our time talking about those verses 28 through 30. And I just want to read those for us quickly and just recap some of the, the summaries we made about these verses because they're difficult verses to understand and comprehend. It says in verse 28 of chapter 3, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So we talked about what does that mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And for one thing, admit it's a difficult verse to understand, and it has throughout history been a difficult verse to understand and interpret, but there are some basic truths that we came away from last week um, appreciating. So one is looking at the context. This comes right after the Pharisees and the teachers basically said Jesus was the devil for doing miracles. And so unique circumstance, unique set of circumstances, unique opportunity for Jesus to point out that what's coming out of you is very wicked because I'm God. Right before you performing all these miracles, it is so obvious that this is a work of God right before your eyes. And not only this one miracle he performs, but he's casting out demons, um, he's healing people, all kinds of miracles, and they keep seeing it, and they basically call him the devil. So it's a unique context and a unique time and a unique opportunity for Jesus to tell them, you are evil. You are, in your core, evil people. They were ascribing a work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. They were callous, hardened, unrepentant people. So that's the first thing to understand is put it in the right context. The second thing is he says it's a very serious warning he has for them. Remember, he said, truly, I say to you. So it's like, listen, listen, truly, I say to you this statement. So it's a very serious warning to these people. On the other hand, we point out that, of course, all sins are forgiven for those who repent. That's very clear in the Bible. And we point out all the characters in the Bible that we know about with David committing murder and adultery and being forgiven. Peter denying the Lord several times, being forgiven. Um, stories of the prodigal son. We talked about Paul, you know, putting to death Christians, really sort of blaspheming against God's work in the lives of Christians and putting them to death, and, and Paul was forgiven. So we have that on the other end of the equation. And so the difficulty is to reconcile what does this really mean. A couple of things we concluded. One, blasphemy is verbal. Okay, blasphemy is a word. It's a spoken word against something. It's blasphemy. You're slandering something and saying something evil. And we point out, if you ever blasphemed anybody, said something really right, harsh, harsh against someone, you would recognize it comes from where? It comes right from here. It comes from, it's not a flippant saying, is what he's talking about. It's something that really indeed is coming from your heart. So blasphemy is going to reveal what's in a person's heart. And so blasphemy speaking out against the Holy Spirit, Jesus is implying this is, this is coming from their inner being. Their inner person is speaking against the Holy Spirit. When it says this is a sin that won't be forgiven, that's the hard part. And the way to understand it, I believe, is to recognize, first of all, by God's grace, a believer won't do it. Okay, so by definition, by God's grace, a believer will not be able to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Okay? And blaspheming the Holy Spirit isn't like, I use this analogy, it's not like a landmine that a Christian has to be fearful of walking around in the course of life thinking, oh, I've got to be careful, I might trip on that blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and then it's all over. I'm going to go to hell. That is just not the way at all to look at it because... God forgives us, and he will not let the believer do something that jeopardizes your eternal life. And ultimately, I concluded, the way I look at it is, um, and the way I get comfort, really, is to recognize that the destiny of the blasphemer of the Holy Spirit, where they go, is the same place all people go who don't acknowledge Christ as Savior, right? So the punishment of the blasphemer of the Holy Spirit is the same punishment that all people get who deny Christ. And in a way, 
Just like the blasphemer denies the power of God and denies the work of Christ and does not repent of their sins and does not accept the atonement of Christ for their sins, that's the same thing that generally all believers share. Right? So in a way, we can be comforted to know that we're not going to trip over this accidentally and that it is consistent with the destiny of all unbelievers because ultimately they will not be forgiven for their unbelief. A believer will not do it. Any questions or comments or thoughts on that? A difficult passage that a lot of people have struggled with over the years. Okay. Actually, we're going to pick up in verse 31 of chapter 3 because we didn't finish this off last week. So why don't I just go ahead and read for you those four verses at the end of chapter 3, and then we'll launch into chapter 4, which is uh, the parable of the sower in the different soils. And just to reorient you the context, Jesus is he's healed on the Sabbath, he's been critiqued, he's been called a devil, he's called his 12 uh, apostles earlier on in the chapter, and he does actually teach him in a little parable about Satan rising up against himself and a house that's divided cannot stand and the kingdom that's divided cannot stand. That's a little mini parable that he spoke of at the end of chapter 3. And when he finishes that teaching about the Holy Spirit, in verse 31 he says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so the few things we want to point out here. One is uh, he had several brothers. Contra some churches that think Mary never had any of her children. This is very clear he had other brothers. James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. We know their names elsewhere in the, in the New Testament. In fact, in chapter 6 of this book, they're listed, those brothers. Is this not the carpenter's son? The carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. This is chapter 6, verse 3. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So not only did he have four brothers, at least, according to that text, but he had sisters, more than one sister, so at least two. So we had at least six siblings. Side note. All right, so they arrived, and they're standing outside, and they sent word in to him, basically, we're here, or we're here to get you. Remember last week we talked about they're like want to perform an intervention on him. Remember they, they said uh, Jesus is losing his mind. He's out of his senses because they see this chaos, and he's being mobbed by I don't know how many people, hundreds at least, probably thousands of people. He's at the sea. It's a lot of chaos going on. They're just a little bit worried about him, that he's just not quite thinking right, and that they want to come in there and help him and pull him out of this, uh, what they consider a dangerous situation. And that's in verse 21 of chapter 3. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. Well, this verse here in 31 confirms that those people that were there to take custody of him were actually his family. Okay, so last week we talked about, well, maybe it was just some other kinsmen, but this, I think, validates that it was his mother and his brothers who are there to intervene in what they think, I believe, was to help him out. When Jesus says, uh, who are my mother and my brothers? So they announce, your family's here. And he says, well, who are my family? This is not to be looked at like it's a slight on his family. This is not a slight on his family at all. He loved his family. Remember, he's on the cross and he says to John, you know, behold your mother, you know, take care of her. No doubt Jesus loved his siblings. Um, so this is, shouldn't be looked at as a slight in undermining the love he has for his family. What it does, though, I think, is um, validates that his spiritual family is the most important. That's what lasts forever. So the people that believe in him and that are following him, they are as if they're his family. They're as close to him as his family. In fact, they're more important. 
So it's an opportunity for him to teach the spiritual truth that those of us that have faith in God, we're part of Jesus' family. We're his siblings. Go ahead. It's interesting when you look at the um, introduction, the first few verses of James, or the first few verses of Jude, both James and Jude did not identify themselves as his earthly half-brother. Great point. They identify themselves as his slave. Mm -hmm. So they realized after their salvation that their spiritual relationship with Christ, with Jesus, was more important than their earthly and didn't boast about their earthly relationship with him. So that would make sense. With what yes, very good point. Excellent, yes. So they, they, when they wrote their books, they didn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. I'm a slave. I'm, I'm his spiritual kindred. Yeah, very good. We'd probably really throw that around, wouldn't we? Yeah, we would. I would. Yeah, we would. Yeah. <laughs> He's my brother. <laughs> yeah, the ultimate name dropping, right? Um, there's other verses, too, that, that you can go to that comfort us that we're part of Jesus' family. John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So this imagery of the family of God. Romans 8, 14 to 17, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So again, that strong imagery of the spiritual family. Tim? Yes. I'm assuming this is taking place in Capernaum? Yes. And they probably came from Nazareth? That's about 20 miles. That's right. So that would have been quite a journey for them, all that family... Yeah. Yes, probably walking. Yeah, 20 miles. And to me, that points to their concern that for Jesus losing his mind. They had heard about him. They'd heard about him casting out demons and the mobs and the uh, Pharisees and the teachers were out to get him. And we read last week, it's in Luke chapter 4, like immediately after he's tempted in the desert and he starts his ministry, he goes to Nazareth and teaches in the temple and he teaches some things that the Pharisees don't like and they actually herd him out to the cliffs and they're trying to kill him right at the very outset of his ministry and so his family knew about that too mm -hmm. so right from the out of the chute they're worried about him you know they they're out to kill him right from the beginning and then they probably hear the Herodians and the uh, Pharisees conspiring together remember we read that a couple weeks ago they conspired together to destroy Jesus and I'm sure that they they had, they'd heard about that so, yeah, I think their concern was very legitimate to the point where they would travel 20 miles to, to help them and do what they thought was right. Okay, any other questions about the end of chapter 3? I think I had read that in the past and thought, well, it's a little bit of slight on his family, but I don't think so. And just His spiritual family is eternal, and it's more important, and he's using this opportunity to point that out. Yes. I really like that it says whoever does the will of God is in obedience. So the obedience is what marks those who truly follow him. They yeah. listen to his word and they believe him. Right. So I just like that it includes that. <laughs> yes. What verse are you on? Uh, uh, verse 35. Whoever does the will whoever does of God, the will. Right. he is my brother and sister. Yeah. That's John 14. You know, um, <laughs> obey my commands. If you love me, keep my commandments. So same same idea. Um, we'll show our love for him by being obedient and obeying him. Go ahead. Now the campmates say that that Joseph was older and those other kids were kids, don't they? That's, that's what I understood. That um, oh, I don't know. He had been married before, and he, that's why they make him older. And that the children mentioned in the Bible are still his children, which would have made Jesus the youngest growing up. Whereas right. it's the other way around. He was the oldest. Well, that's a. She's pointing out the Catholics think that they were half brothers. Well, they are half brothers anyway. Are, but um, <laughs> that Jesus was the youngest. So that's how they get around it. They right. Jesus, I see. But yeah. It, but it makes you wonder. Most kids left the family married in their teens, mm -hmm. and if that were true, none of them would probably have been in the household anymore unless it was the state senator. So yeah. it kind of sheds a, an interesting. Yeah, I I guess. 
we don't have any obsession or need to validate that Mary never had children. So I, I imagine you could contort and make some assumptions, but we have no problem thinking because she's not God. She was a vessel and she was blessed by God. And, but any other questions about that? I guess it could make, I mean, it makes, I can see how one's mind could get around that. For sure, I think Joseph was older. It seems like he's deceased at this point because he's never really mentioned elsewhere. But um, anyway, we don't have that need to, to go there. Well, they're required to do that because their theology is based on Mary being a perpetual virgin. Mm-hmm. They also use a nuance of the Greek word that's often used for brother in connection with hmm. with Jesus that can mean relative, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work because there are too many other Greek words that could be used to mean relative, when right. this one's primary meaning is sibling. Right. So the writers chose the word brother, basically. The natural meaning would be brother on purpose. Very good. Okay, chapter 4, before, we, before I read the section which I'd like to study today, which is those first 20 verses, uh, I just want to talk a minute about parables in general, a little sort of hermeneutic study um, to help us, as I read through it, understand the, the parable. Um, first, okay, so, so Jesus, it's a teaching tool. A parable. That's what Jesus taught in parables, and he did this a lot. Not so much in Mark, but in the other Gospels, you see that. And to understand it, you sort of have to rely on some of our rules of interpreting Scripture that we, with common sense, have determined. We call it hermeneutics. So the first thing we have to know, in order to understand Scripture, the first criteria to really understand it is what? Well, yeah, yeah, sorry, I, I shouldn't ask those open-ended questions. First thing is, we have to be saved. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is what helps us interpret Scripture. So the non-believer can read it and understand the history and have questions about it, but they're not going to understand it as well, or not nearly as well at all, really, the spiritual truths like a believer will. So we have to be saved. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to read a few verses there, verses 12 through 16. It says, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. So he's saying we're taught by the spirit. It's not human wisdom. The spirit specially gives the believer an ability to learn. Um, Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. So God's word is of his spirit. So the natural man cannot accept it like a believer can. For their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So great verse to remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, that explains to us that the natural man cannot understand it. The, the natural man who's a skeptic can read and read and read. Unless the Spirit quickens them, they're not going to be able to understand the deeper truths of God's Word. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is a really good verse, too in the context of what we're going to read, the God of this age blinding the minds of unbelievers, like the devil stealing the seed as soon as it hits the ground. Okay, so I was going to mention three necessary conditions to effectively interpret Scripture. One is we have to be saved. Two, we have to be faithful to study it. Um, Like newborn babes, Peter says, we long for the pure milk of the world so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then we have to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman. Remember, we studied that in 2 Timothy. We'd be diligent to study it as a workman so we'll not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. So in order to help us understand Scripture, we have to be saved, 
We have to be faithful to study it and diligent to study his word in order to fully benefit from what is in here. Now, when we get to parables, uh, that word parable is a transliteration of a Greek word, parabolis. It's good transliteration. It's almost identical. All right, so para means beside. Balos is what it is. Parabalos means to throw or to cast. So the idea here is something thrown alongside of something else. It's really a comparison. You'll speak one truth which everyone can understand, and then that right alongside of that truth is a spiritual teaching, and they're, they're sort of matched. And this is it's like an expanded simile. That's what a parable is. And in order to interpret parables, I want to read for you. Actually, Drew Laws give a great uh, study series on hermeneutics. And I'm just going to read some of his notes here because it's a really good definition of a parable. Okay, so um, the idea then is that facts in one realm, so the parable, teach the facts in one realm, which everyone understands, which the hearers know, are cast alongside of facts in a spiritual realm so that they will see by analogy or correspondence what is true in this realm. A parable is something placed alongside something else for the purpose of comparison. The, two, the typical parable uses a common event of natural life to emphasize or clarify an important spiritual truth. Okay, so, anybody say something? I'm hearing things. Okay, so, so we understand what parables are, and I think this may be basic for you, but I just wanted to be sure we're on the same page with it. Um, so to interpret a parable, there's a few things to note. First of all, context is key, just like all scripture, but with a parable, you really have to understand the context of the saying. Pay special attention to the occasion in which it's written. It's important to understand the natural meaning of the part of the story that's natural. It's important to understand, like in this parable, what is a seed? What is a soil? What's a sower? You know, what's, what's the natural image here that's being taught? Understand the main point. In a parable, there's going to be one, typically, one main point, and that's what we focus on. And it'll help you understand the details, but with parables, you got to be very careful not to spend too much time trying to interpret the details that are that are just beyond the thrust of the meaning. And you'll be able to see that here, how one could get a little sidetracked. So uh, just be careful with parables. Don't develop a complete, total theology around a parable. That's dangerous, too. If you, if you have a certain theology in your mind, it may not be consistent with what the Scripture overall teaches. And if you bring that into the parable, and the parable's intent was not to teach on that theological issue you're trying to validate or justify, that's just dangerous. Sort of called eisegesis, where you bring your own thoughts into it and expand the parable beyond what it was intended to teach. So focus on a single point. And don't try to assign meaning to every little detail. And, of course, and obviously, pay most attention when Jesus interprets it for you. Right? So when he, when he tells a parable and they say, what does that mean? And then he interprets it, that's it. Right? There's not any need to go beyond what he said. I've, I've heard sermons where really the teacher tries to get so clever with all different imagery, and it's, it's almost, I mean, you could do it with anything if you spent enough time being colorful and flavorful about uh, imagery and stuff. So be careful with parables. You, you cannot do that. And if Jesus teaches what it's about, that's the, end of the, that's the end. That's what it's about. Okay, there are about 50 different parables in the New Testament short of 50, but somewhere near there. And if you were to look through the other Gospels, about one-third of Jesus' teaching that's recorded in the New Testament is in parables. So it's important for us to understand how to interpret them and uh, how to read them and how to really glean from them what the Lord wants us to understand. The context in this parable, before I read it, is up until now, you have seen a lot of different responses to Jesus's preaching in his gospel, right? Very first thing Jesus says after he, in chapter 1 of Mark, after he's baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness, is, now, after John had been taken into custody, this is verse 14, chapter 1, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The very first thing he's going to do. 
and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, a great intro to his, his um, ministry. Repent and believe. He came preaching the gospel. Repent and believe. That's why he came, and that's the first thing Mark tells us. Between that verse and here, so many different people have heard the gospel and had really wildly different reactions to it, right? You have his committed followers. We read about the apostles whom he called, and they are following him. Peter and James and John and uh, Matthew and the 12 we read last week. So we have those guys that are there. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're hearing and they're conspiring to kill him. So they don't believe. You have, um, they're even calling him the devil, right? A complete opposite reaction. The people who really only seem to know exactly what's going on are the demons. They're, I mean, sorry, ironic. They're the ones that know. You're the Jesus, son of God. Well, don't tell anybody. So the demons have a reaction and they understand who he is. You have his family who we just read about. So they're a little skeptical, right? That they, I mean, Mary certainly knew he was divine, he was God, but they're still sort of skeptical of his ministry and his methods. You have the, um, the crowds. It's almost like that's, that's a whole entity itself, the crowds, the very large crowds, and they're mobbing him and pushing him around. And they have a reaction. It's a little bit mixed. For sure, they love the miracles, and they're really enthralled by that. We don't know how many of them are believers, but you know... Well, later we'll read here in Mark and then in the other Gospels that most of them didn't believe. Most of them were just there for the miracles. In John chapter 12, I want to read that. Why don't you flip there real quick because it's an interesting um, truth about his ministry. Uh, highlighting how uh, different people have different reactions. And even the Pharisees were divided. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. So, nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Okay, so just to point that out, some of the Pharisees were inclined to believe in him. I sort of think of Nicodemus. You know, he's a, in chapter 3, sort of, coming at night, you're not sure what his true heart was all about, but he had some interest. He wanted to know about eternal life. And uh, aside from him, certainly there were other leaders that did believe in him, but they were conflicted because of their love of the world or fear of the other uh, leaders. Okay, so the, the point I'm trying to make is the context being, I feel certain, it's intentional. The apostles were kind of wondering, wow, that's weird. I mean, it's, you're performing these miracles, and it's amazing, and they have this belief, and they're committed, and they're following him, and they see all these different reactions of Jesus. So that's the context that we're going to read about this parable in chapter 4. Before we go there, sorry. <laughs> Matthew 13, go there first, because uh, the parallel verse for Mark chapter 4 is Matthew 13, and Luke 8. They're basically teaching the same, describing the same scene. And I want to go to Matthew 13 because this is the first place in the New Testament the word parable is used. And it is the same scene that we're going to read about in a minute in Mark chapter 4. And just to point out in chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables. Okay, so this tells us he spoke many things to them in parables. And also from this chapter, in verse 1 of that chapter, it says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. So Matthew confirms that this same day he's teaching the parable in Mark 4 is the same day he's done those other miracles. Okay, Mark doesn't tell us that, but it is the same day. Matthew chapter 13 is the most dense chapter in the Bible for Jesus' parables. There's eight parables he tells in that one chapter, 13, implying that when Jesus was out teaching on the boat, which we'll read about in a minute, this wasn't the only parable he taught. He taught a lot of different parables that day to all those people that were listening. And in chapter 13 in Matthew, while he's still there, just a verse I want to point out is that Jesus' ministry was marked by teaching in parables. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. So 
for the whole day. The whole day he was teaching them in parables. Who knows how many? He may have taught dozens. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's fulfilling prophecy. That's in Psalms chapter 78. Matthew, he never taught anything but parables. Yes. From yeah, if you study Matthew, chapter 13 is a turning point. Mm -hmm. From 13 on, that, that's really all he does is teach in parables. So, thank you, Dave. While we're still there in chapter 13. Uh, that's great. No, uh, go to chapter 13, verse 10. I'll, I'll read these seven verses because we're going to revisit this when we read Mark. This is, uh, these are seven verses where Jesus really tells the purpose, the purpose of teaching in parables. All right? which is the main thrust of today's lesson, if we ever get there, but which um, it's very clear here, and it's hard to understand. And it was, it's, been, it's been a little difficult for me to appreciate Jesus' teaching in parables, but hopefully we'll have some clarity as we go through this. So if I could just read those seven verses in Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. So it's so clear what he's saying. He said, I speak because I'm going to show you. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And this is just exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Like 700 years earlier, this is what Isaiah was saying. You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So, we'll revisit this when we, in, in, a, in a few minutes, but basically <laughs> Jesus is saying here, there's two reasons he speaks in parables. Number one, he's is hiding the truth from unbelievers. And this is a present judgment on them. He's basically telling them, I'm speaking to you in a parable. You're not going to be able to understand it. This is your judgment. You don't understand it because your heart is hard. Okay, the hardened heart is first. And this gets into the mystery of how we understand God's sovereign grace in our own hearts to change it. But they're guilty because their hearts are hard. And that their judgment on them is that they're not going to understand what Jesus is saying. That's the one purpose for speaking in parables. He's showing the unbelievers that they're currently being judged. Okay? then the second reason is to teach the believers. It's a blessing to them to teach it to them. And we'll read in Mark that they need help because they ask, well, what does that mean? They don't have the Holy Spirit yet to really help them fully grasp it. And so he's there to explain it to them. And they're uniquely there with him hearing the explanation and the other people are not. So it is a judgment on the unbelievers and it's a blessing on the believers to understand the parable. Tim, one, one more thing you might add to that is it's, it's an even greater judgment on the Pharisees yeah. because the Jews had been given the oracles of God. Right. They had been hearing the truth from Abraham forward, right. but yet they refused to believe. Right. Shane. As opposed to the Gentiles who had not received the oracles of God. Right. Yeah, what benefit is it to the Jew? Much in every way. Just to like you, Paul his... said in the first three chapters of Romans. Right. We just, were you in church this morning? No. Oh, well, you get it next hour. So, yeah, exactly. That's what Shane said today. Um, they didn't understand it. And they were blessed with God's oracles, and yet their hearts were hardened. Okay, finally, let's get to our lesson. I'm going to read Mark chapter 4. And so uh, as I read through it, just remember some of those key features of a parable to help us interpret it. About There's one main point. The visual story is very clear to understand. And, um, and then we'll go through it slowly. 
Okay, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So anyway, before I go on, imagine the scene, okay? The confusion about people receiving the word, some are doing this, some are doing that, it's varied. And so he's mobbed by these very many people earlier from Nazareth, from Judea, from there probably thousands and thousands of people. And he goes down by the sea to teach. A very large crowd. He gets into this boat, goes out a little ways, and turns around. They're all on the land. So what you have is this image of this, this amphitheater. And he is preaching to these thousands of people up on the, um, the shore. There's apparently an area in Capernaum, where the, in the north port part where the Jordan River comes in, that is sort of like this, where it's sort of a cove that's carved out like that. So maybe that's where he was. But isn't it a miracle? I think of that. So uh, how he, he has been provided that setting in the boat, in the water, and you see the image of Jesus out there, this little dot in the boat, in this sea, and all the people. It's just a great image. Again, Mark is describing that for the people, the Romans, who originally would have been um, hearing this. Great image. And two, in my mind... When Jesus is teaching parables, I often think of him, you know, a small crowd of people and sitting down and just a few people. But not here. This, this is dramatic, okay? A dramatic scene. Plus, doesn't the water amplify? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So you can hear. Yeah, echoes. And it may, there's a little, apparently, the way that, where this area is that I mentioned, it's like that. It would have echoed off the hills and this cove area, and people could have gathered all around to hear it. Everyone could see him. A really nice scene, a majestic parable he's about to tell them. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, exclamation point, listen to this. Okay, listen to this. This is like an important parable I'm about to tell you, very important. In the context that you have just explained to you, the setting, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? I say that emphasis intentionally, my own inflection. Do you not understand this exact parable? How will you understand all the parables? It's important here. This is a foundational parable that he wants his apostles to understand. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. So I imagine he's, these, he's probably gesturing, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones... I just had this thought. I wonder if he's... These are the ones who did that, gesturing. Pharisees. These are the ones, maybe the healed people. And then I, I'm just wondering as I'm reading this, and then those, maybe he's pointing to his disciples. I don't know. 
But as I read it, I just had that thought. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying to them, oh, that's it. Bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So, what's the main point? What's the main imagery here? It's often called the parable of the sower, right? I think your Bible might have that heading. But I don't think it's the main image here. The main issue here is what? The heart and the soils. The heart is the soil, right? Um, Luke says, I think it's Luke. He doesn't say directly here that the heart is the analogy of the soil, but it's in Luke that he does say that. So let's go back through it. So the soil is the, is the main focus here. There's, there's four different soils. The seed is the same. The sower is the same, but the four soils are different. So let's go back through it slowly. We know from Matthew this is the same day as these other miracles he performed. Such a very large crowd. That's a unique phrase in the Greek, a very large crowd. Not a large crowd like the other ones you read about in the gospel. This is a very large, huge crowd. He gets into the boat. This amphitheater situation, this cove, this amphitheater, he's announcing this sermon. When it says, and he was teaching them many things in parables and saying to them in this teaching, the idea here is um, even to Mark, Matthew 2, this, there's a new style of teaching here that's arrived. Prior to this, you had a little parable at the end of chapter 3 about the uh, division of the kingdom and the family and Satan, but here's when the parable really launches, and it's a different style. Before he'd go into synagogues, he would argue with them, he would discuss things. They all marveled at his teaching, but this teaching here is different. And he describes a scene that everyone that was listening would have understood, this sower. I mean, that's what they did then when they farmed. People would walk around with a sack and seed, and they had a plow, a handmade plow. Probably some oxen would pull some sort of wooden plow, and they would plow up portions of the, their field, and they would just cast these seeds into it. Okay, and so that's an image that was occurring all the time, certain times of the year. Everyone knew what Jesus was talking about. That's the way they farmed back then, casting these seeds onto the fertile soil. Listen to this, exclamation point. It's important. Listen to this. All right, so, so let's get into the different areas the seeds go to. First one. As he was sowing, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. So the idea here is you have a field, and there's roads next to it, or even footpaths. And when the disciples earlier were walking through the fields and eating the heads of grain, that's probably what they were walking on was one of these very hard footpaths. It's kind of like concrete, you can imagine, or a really, really hard, hard, packed-down road. You could not plant any grass on that, all right? Be throwing it, throwing it on concrete. So it's just not going to grow on that um, soil. And the birds come and eat it up. We'll get into the explanation in a minute. The second seed that falls on rocky ground, the idea here is not um, rocks, you know, pebbles that are all over the place like we might think of here. We just have rocks instead of dirt. What they're describing here back there, rocky ground, meant basically a very, very thin layer of dirt sitting on top of this hard limestone. All right, so um, the limestone is warm underneath. It's absorbing heat from the sun. This little thin layer of dirt on top isn't really enough to support a seed for long. Okay, when the seed starts to grow, it's, it's not going to get any nutrient. It won't hold the water. It's not going to last. The thorns, I think we understand what that is when they would clear a field. They'd get rid of all the thorn bushes, completely dirt, but you still have these little roots down there. And they would start growing too, and when they grew up, they could choke out the seed or choke out the plant. Um, and then you, of course, have the seeds falling on the good soil, and they yield a crop. Apparently, back then, a crop of six or eight fold was really good. So he's saying these guys will have 30, 60, and 100 fold. Okay, so the crop that he's describing here is, is a magnificent crop, unlike they would ever imagine. Verse 10, as soon as he was alone, so the idea here is 
he probably was in the amphitheater for a long time teaching in parables. After he finished, he goes alone with his disciples. And so when he says, and as soon as he was alone, basically meaning the crowd has left and he's there alone with his disciples and his followers. Because it says there, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. In Matthew it says, why do you speak in parables? We already read that. So they're asking, why are you speaking in parables? Implying that even they yet don't quite understand what he's saying. They need his help. Verse 11, to, and he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery. I want to explain that word mystery. So to us, a mystery, like a mystery book, it's like a riddle. There's something you have to figure out. There's a code and it's a mystery and it's a secret thing that, that you have to figure out. It doesn't quite have that impression here in the use of it in that time or even in the Hebrew Bible. Mystery really meant a spiritual truth that was previously unrevealed. That's how we understand a lot of what happened when Jesus came. There are spiritual truths that before he came just were not revealed to people yet. And that's what Jesus is revealing to them now when he comes to earth. A mystery, a truth that he's now going to reveal to them. It's so interesting. That word mystery, it's only used three times in the Gospels. And it's the only time it's used is in this parable. So... I, um, sort of validates the idea when he says, listen to this parable. This parable is about the mystery of the kingdom of God and, and how my word goes forth. Paul uses the word mystery a lot in his writings, but in the gospel accounts, this is the only scene where that word is used. Just like the truth was previously, some parts of the truth were previously unrevealed to the Old Testament believers. Just have to admit it. it Part of it was unrevealed to them, but he's revealing the truth to the, his disciples and the people who will hear it. Okay. And the mystery he's going to reveal to them is of the kingdom of God. He's telling them that, okay, this is what the kingdom of God is about. You, I'm going to explain to you how this works. Out, those outside get everything in parables while seeing they may not see they may see and not perceive while hearing they may hear and not understand otherwise they might return and be forgiven this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 and like I said before basically Jesus is teaching in parables as a form of judgment for those who are hearing it because it's hidden from them even in, while they're alive here he's hiding the truth from them therefore they're currently being judged He's basically saying, you people who don't understand are being judged. Maybe in his mercy, over the years, they would have remembered the parable. And maybe by his grace, he would, their hearts would have softened, and they would at some point understand the truth. But what he's telling them now is, you're being judged. In verse 13, as I mentioned, it says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? The parable of sower and the seed is the first parable taught in the Gospels. It's foundational to understanding all the other parables because it teaches a basic truth about the gospel. God saves. God has prepared hearts. God is the one who prepares the soil. He doesn't mention the sower adjusting the soil. The sower just spreads the seed. God's the one that saves, and God's the one that prepares hearts. So let's go through again. Look at We've got a few minutes. I do want to get through these four different types of seeds. In Luke, it says, Luke's introduction to this says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So it's pretty clear to us when we read this account that that's what it is, but Luke is even more explicit. The seed is the word of God. And the ones who are beside the road are like hard-packed concrete soil. That's what their heart is. It is hard, it's concrete, it's not repentant. They're not going to receive this word. It's going to bounce right off and just sit there. And it's going to sit there for like one millisecond before a bird comes by and plucks it out. Okay? And this scene, this is what happened when they were spreading seed. There were birds around the guy and they would come by and pluck the seed. And they're certainly going to pluck the seed off that hard soil. It can't even begin to start a root. And clearly, this is the Pharisees. This is what they're like. They're the ones calling him Satan. They're conspiring to kill him. This is what they're like. The sun is going to scorch that word right out of their lives instantly. 
the Pharisees have a very, very hard heart. And Satan comes and takes away the word. And that just reminds us, Satan is active, actually, and he is around. When the word is being scattered, Satan is nearby, and he's snatching the word out of people that have the hard hearts. So, Satan, how does he do that, by the way? Practically, when Satan steals the word, what tactics do we know he uses? Lies. Lies is the biggest one. Who said that? Yeah, lies. Deception and lies. Can't be true. Jonah wasn't really in a whale. You know, I mean, it's just lies. Lies, lies, lies. Skeptical um, ideas. When we read a difficult part of Scripture, or a non-believer for sure reads it, I mean, it's so easy for them to say, this is just fairy tale. This can't be. Look at the gospel accounts. Don't really jive. This instantly um, won't believe it and find all kinds of reasons to not believe it. So I think that's, that's one practical way Satan works. He lies and he deceives and he persuades and steals the word away. I want to read for you John a sec. You don't have to flip there. I'll get it. It's John chapter 8, verse 36. Speaking of Satan. Remember chapter 8 of John, the end of it is when uh, he says, I am. You know, basically saying, I am God. And that's, in John, that's when the persecution really gets going and they get blood red angry mad at him and want to kill him at the end of John chapter 8 but this is leading up to it talking to those same people let me hold one second yes so if if the son makes you free you'll be free indeed I know that you are Abraham's descendants yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you it's a great parallel in, in my mind his word has no place in them because their hearts are hard and Satan is right there nearby I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. So they might be starting to think, oh, yeah, our father, Abraham. That's not what he's talking about. They answered and said to him, Abraham is, your, is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Why do they not understand what he's saying? And he answers it. It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, uh, I think a great complimentary verse to what Jesus is saying here about the seed falling on hard hearts and the devil's right there nearby. Okay, the second seed, I've already mentioned this. It's falling on this thin layer of dirt. It starts to grow, not much soil there. It hits that hot limestone and pfft, just kind of fizzles out real quick. It says immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched and it withered away. So there probably were some people that Jesus gestured to there that saw a miracle, thought it was great, neat, cool, and then immediately, quickly walked a different way. And John, you read about it, the teaching becomes hard they walked away. They love the food. They want more food. They want miracles. But when the teaching becomes hard, they, they immediately walk away. The third group is, um, let's see. Yeah, the second people I call it, it's a superficial response. And before I move to the third seed, it reminded me of the verse in 2 Timothy we studied a couple months ago. The people who, let me read it for you. He, Paul's talking to Timothy about following his teaching. He says, now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. So the superficial person is not going to do that, right? Such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that kind of person Paul's talking to Timothy about, which is, 
Paul and what he's encouraging Timothy to do, that will not be what the superficial responsive person will do. The persecutions will come, the hard times will come, and they will not stick with it. So the second seed is a superficial response. The third seed is the worldly response. So you know what happens here. The worries of the world, the love of riches, the love of life come up and they choke out the word. The point here is the believer's heart can't be divided. You can't love God and love money. There's so many teachings in the Bible about money in particular, but also other worldly things like power and whatever else we might want that's of the world. We can't love both. You cannot love God and love money both at the same time. Our heart cannot be divided. I had always used this verse to describe my own self. Like, how you doing, Tim? Yeah, good, but you know, the world is choking me out a little bit. That's, I've sort of flippantly used that phraseology from this parable to describe sometimes when you just get busy with work and things, are, you know, your life just gets cluttered. But I'm going to be careful from here on out using that because I believe the fate of these first three seeds is the same. They don't bear any fruit. They're not believers. They're not referring to a heart that is ultimately saved. I think all those first three seeds fall on soil that, and it says it here in every one of these, fall away, do not bear fruit, becomes unfruitful, the desire of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So it seems like what he's saying is the seed will fall. Three out of four aren't going to make it. Not that he's using that proportion, obviously. It's probably a lot higher ratio than that. But the first three don't bear any fruit, and they don't make it. It's the fourth one that falls on fertile soil that bears fruit. Do not store treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I think that's the same, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Same thing he's saying in the, about the third seed in, in other verses. And then the fourth seed is falling on good soil. That's the soil the Lord has prepared. It's the only seed that's going to bear any fruit. And it's the same sentiment that Paul thanked the Thessalonians for when he wrote to them. For this reason, we thank, constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men. So Paul is thanking God that he prepared those Thessalonians to receive it and to grow. He's thanking God for that. Not thanking the Thessalonians. He's thanking God that they were able to receive his word and to grow in it. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. I am the vine, you're the branches. Same imagery. He's the, he's it. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so, I mean, I think that's, there's a slight temptation to read this and actually, you know, doubt a little bit. Mm -hmm. Thinking that it's you're who's supposed to be cultivating your heart or your soul. Like, you have to be ready, like, in, if you're not preparing your mm -hmm. heart enough that, you know, God's word isn't going to be taking any root, but. I mean, it's really God who's also preparing our hearts right. as well as providing his word to, yes. to grow. I mean, there's a response there, but it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're, it's challenging, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. To understand how much we do to prepare ourselves versus what God does. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes, I think it is challenging. And two, I think ba based on the principles of interpreting a parable... The main the thrust of this parable is, he's, he's like he's saying to the, his apostles, guys, this is ministry. You are going to be casting seeds about, and many people aren't going to believe you. Many people aren't. The ones who believe, I've prepared their hearts. I'm the soil maker. He doesn't say that here, but you just cast the seed. And don't get discouraged. Don't fret over it. You just keep casting the seed. You just keep speaking the word. You just keep, keep diligent with your task, and I will be the one. That, I'm the vine, right? I'm the vine. Other things are branches. I'll prepare the soil. You just keep casting the seed. So I think that that's the thrust of this one. As far as the issue of preparing our own hearts, repenting of our sin, being sanctified, there's other teaching that emphasize that, and it's true. But I think the thrust here is really for them to understand and not get discouraged when they're doing their ministry. Just do your ministry doing what I've commanded you to do. 
The sower spreads the seed. The sower doesn't tamper with the soil. We don't throw fertilizer on it. I mean, I'm extending too far, but the point being, um, the sower just spreads the seed. Right. Yes, in this context, in this context, right, when we live godly lives, everything else, but what he's telling them is you're going to go forth, you're to spread this, the seed. I'll handle the soil issue. I've prepared the heart. It helps them. <laughs> the pre-emergent. Maybe that was John the Baptist, right? The pre-emergent was the baptism of repentance. Yeah, good question. So, um, I think it's going to help them get a proper expectation of the outcome of their evangelization. Right? It just helps them orient. It says, but Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, even when we were dead, made us alive. So, it's giving them proper expectation and then encouraging them too to pray that God would grant them repentance. In 1 Timothy, pray that God might grant them repentance so that they'll be they'll learn of the knowledge of God. Come to their senses. It says, learn of the knowledge of God and come to their senses. Right? So, God's the one who does the work. The question is, where does the prepared heart come from? What makes a hard heart? What makes a soft heart? What is the step that leads somebody from a hard heart to a soft heart? I mean, it's just such a mystery to me. I don't... Well, I can answer some of it. I know, but even when you answer it, it's it is, like, it's... I don't get it. Well, Paul gets there, too, in Romans. Remember when he goes to Romans 9 and 10? Romans 11, verse 33, one of my favorite verses. You know, he just steps back and says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's where he gets to. He's like, he kind of, I imagine him just saying, we cannot fathom it. The depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That, that's where you go to. But the hard heart comes from ourselves. We all have hard hearts, and the softening comes from the Lord. That, that's, Jeremiah says, can the leopard change his spots? Right. Or can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a man with a hard heart change his heart? And the answer is no. Can a, can a piece of clay make him, can a piece of clay complain about how he was made? You can't, right? So we're like clay, we're like leopards. But if the Lord softens the heart, why doesn't he soften everybody's heart? I don't get it. It's hard to understand, but if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11... He anticipates your question. He goes through that Romans 9 with the twins, and he anticipates it. We'll go here, but I want to answer that with one really, well, several really good verses here. Um, let's see. One reason is uh, Romans nine twenty one. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make in the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God... Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches. Here's why. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's one main reason. He endures it, and he does it to, to show his great mercy to those of us who he's had mercy on. Yes, you will, right. you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? So, it, I, I, I think we get to the point where Paul does eventually, says God's wisdom and his knowledge and his kindness and his goodness and his mercy knows all. And his timing is perfect, and his kingdom is perfect, and praise him for it. Verse 16 points out that it's so that God gets the glory, yeah. and we don't get the glory. It's, Another, it's right. not based on the man who wills or runs, but God who has mercy. Yeah. There, there's no room to boast. <laughs> no room to boast. It, it, we just come totally prostrate before him, and, and to him is the glory, and... That's right. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Right. Yes. Especially if you consider yourself. I don't know if I consider myself. Why would he save me? Yeah. Yes. Why would he bother with any of us? Right. Very good. Thank you.
Any other thoughts or questions? Yes, go ahead, Dave. Just one other thought, and that is easy believism is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's so shallow. And there again, staying true, mm-hmm. you know, staying together, true, it all sits itself out. And yeah. eventually you're not either real good or not. Right. Yeah, easy, belie- easy believism is, is prevalent. Yeah. Shane touched on it, the contrast, you know, to understand God's mercy, you have to understand his judgment. You, ha- you have to, it, there's a contrast where you appreciate. I think it was um, a sermon I heard recently about the diamond against a black velvet backdrop, right? And the diamond really glistens and is bright and magnificent when you put it behind this velvet backdrop. So you need, you need the judgment and the truth and the fear of the Lord to appreciate his light. You need the darkness to appreciate light. Okay, very good. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thanks.